on today's episode of Power of the Towel for the Next Misconduct Network, Oliver Ekman Larson, OEL, heavily rumored to be getting traded potentially to the Vancouver Canucks. What does that mean? Is this going to be a good fit? Should Canucks even go for him? And if they do, what's going to be the price? We get all into that. No news yet on any of the Canucks free agents. Are they all waiting for the Jacob Markstrom shoe to drop? We get into that. And of course, today is draft day in the National Hockey League. We have Scott Wheeler, prospect guru of the Athletic, on to talk all things NHL draft, not just surrounding the Canucks, but the league in general. Should be a good one. You'll be saying wow every time you use this towel. He's not a person at all. He's a towel. You're a towel. But in Vancouver, mainly it's all about towel power. Are you ready? Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Power of the Towel for the Next Misconduct Network. I'm your host, Nick Bondi. And before you go listen to this episode any further, if you have not already, subscribe to the Nux Misconduct Network. You get four shows for one swipe and one tap. Of course, this show, Silky and Filthy, Puck Talking Bullshit, with Kyle Bowen and Trevor Beggs, the quickie. Yes, the quickie with Trevor Beggs, your daily fix of hockey talk. And of course, Sip It On A 40, which made its triumphant return on Sunday. Now, of course, the big rumor surrounding the Vancouver Canucks right now is not even involving a player currently on the team like we have in the past. It is Oliver Ekman Arlarsson. Man, it's a tongue twister. OEL. That's an easy way to say it. OEL. Oliver Ekman Larson. Rumored to be getting traded to the Vancouver Canucks. He has a Two-team list, Boston-Vancouver. That's where he wants to go. Seems to be buddies of Jacob Markstrom, who we'll get to in a minute. And it's interesting because I think you're now starting to see players want to come to Vancouver. You're starting to see... In the past, some of these contracts the Canucks have gone in trouble with is they've had to pay the bad team tax. The Jay Beagles, the Antoine Roussels, the Michael Del Zottos even. They've had to overpay to get people to come here to fill out depth. That's not going to be the case anymore with Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes. So that's a good sign. Now, in Oliver ekman Larson's case, what are the Canucks going to have to give up? Well, the rumor is they want a high-end prospect, they want a good pick, and they want a roster player. Which, given the Canucks situation, I don't think it's going to be like that. I think they're going to have to give up some salary as well to make this fit under the salary cap. But I tweeted this out, and it's got a bit of traction on Canucks Twitter. If you want to give up a bunch of assets for Oliver ekman Larson, why not use those assets for a guy who fits the age of the core? Oliver ekman Larson is 29 years old. That doesn't mean he's old by any sense. Hey, I'm 26. Oliver Ekman Larson is just three years older than me. 
but does the 29-year-old defenseman with a long term left fit the core of the Vancouver Canucks? Ask yourself that. I don't know. I, I tend to say no. I don't think this would be a good fit for the Vancouver Canucks. He's a left-shot defenseman. So, theoretically, if you trade for Oliver Lechman Larson, who is he replacing? Well, he's probably going to replace Alex Edler, who has one year left on that $6 million deal. He is probably going to play a second pairing with Tyler Myers. That's how it would shape up right now. It would be Quinn Hughes, number one left side defenseman, with insert whoever, and then it would be Oliver Ekman Larson and Tyler Myers. That's probably how it's shaping up right now. So are you really going to pay OEL Myers 14 mil for a second pairing? Is that wise? You can perhaps move Hughes to the right side, put OEL as a top pairing defenseman like he is currently with Arizona. But do you want Hughes playing on his offside? Is he capable? Is he comfortable doing that? I don't know. But if you're going to spend a lot of assets, you're going to get premium assets. So we're talking a guy like a Coles and Hoglander, a first-round pick, and something like that is what the Arizona Coyotes want. Again, why not use those assets to go for a guy who would fit the core? Hey, maybe shoot for the stars and try and get a guy like Aaron Ekblad out of Florida. Aaron Ekblad. It seems like the Panthers want to move salary out from their defense. They've done it maybe a bit with Matheson, so maybe the appetite isn't as strong there anymore. It's going to take a lot. It's going to take maybe a bit more than what the Arizona Coyotes want for OEL, but you get an Ekblad Hughes top pairing, you're set for the next seven, eight years. You'll be set. Friend of the show, Thomas Strantz, on his podcast, mentioned Eric Chernak from the recent Stanley Cup champs, the Tampa Bay Lightning. You could offer sheet him, get him for maybe a second round pick. Now, Chernak doesn't have the big, flashy name like an OEL, like an Aaron Ekblad. But it's interesting. I think he'd be a good fit. Again, not a big, flashy name, but he was solid for the Tampa Bay Lightning in these playoffs. So again, Oliver ekman Larson. I don't know about this one. If you, It's going to take a lot to get him out of Arizona, even if the fact, and people have brought this up online to me, that... It sounds like Vancouver is the only team actively involved in negotiations. Does that bring the price down? I don't know. Does this put Arizona in a bind to try and just get whatever for him? We thought the same thing with JT Miller last year, right? We thought, oh, Tampa Bay up against the cap, need to shed salary. Canucks, remember, it was the second day of that draft. The Canucks announced they were getting traded. Sorry, they were trading for JT Miller. No one knew what the return was. Everyone's saying, oh, okay, this could be a good pick, piece of business for Jim Benning. Boom. They gave up a first-round pick for JT Miller. And obviously, it worked out. But I'm just saying that the Vancouver Canucks may not be able to get a deal from the Arizona Coyotes for Oliver Ekman-Larsen if it just comes down to Vancouver because, again, they weren't able to get a deal with Tampa when they were up against it for the JT Miller trade. It'll be interesting to see what 
the price will be for OEL if he does get traded. Because it sounds like, again, from reports I've read, the Canucks are the only team right now out for Oliver ekman Larson OEL. Now, it's been pretty quiet from the Vancouver Canucks in terms of signings, trades. I think a lot of people expected maybe a f- bit more movement before the first round of the NHL draft. And there's still time. There's still time. But it sounds like all the Canucks moves are waiting on two things. This aforementioned Oliver ekman Larson move, which may or may not happen, and Jacob Markstrom. Robin Leonard finally signed that 5x5 deal that was leaked out during the playoffs. So I think Markstrom, you can, you can argue about term, but I think the annual value will be over 6 or at 6 for sure now. He's not going to, he's better goalie than Robin Leonard, and Robin Leonard got 5x5. Five five. So I think the cap hit's going to be around 6 for Jacob Markstrom, but it seems like everything is waiting on him. It seems like the Vancouver Canucks are waiting to see what the price will be on Jacob Markstrom if they can get a deal done before they make any other moves. And I said this on last episode. This is the first time where I am convinced that Jacob Markstrom could not be a Vancouver Canuck next season. I know Trevor Beggs has talked about it on the quickie. It's a very real possibility that he tests the open market, he gets a big payday from another team, and he's gone. And the Canucks will have to ride with Demko next year. It'll be a shame, but that's a very real possibility right now. And I think Thomas Trance and Rick Dollywall laid it up pretty well in their most recent article for Athletic. I don't want to blow up their spot too much because this is behind the paywall. I encourage you all to subscribe. But essentially, the plan is once Jacob Markstrom signed, then they'll move on to the other guys. If Jacob Markstrom doesn't re-sign, then they're going using that maybe a bit of extra cap room to go for a 1B goalie and you listen guys like Grice, Holtby, Cam Talbot, someone like that, to split the starts with Thatcher Demko next year. Very real possibility, folks, that Jacob Markstrom could be on the Detroit Red Wings, the Edmonton Oilers, the Calgary Flames, the insert team here. Insiders have talked about it. He is probably the clear number two free agent right now behind Alex Petrangelo. And for each passing day that we just hear rumors that the Canucks are working on a deal, the more I'm convinced Jacob Markstrom is at least going to test the open market, i.e. it will be October 9th, the Vancouver Canucks will not have Jacob Markstrom under contract. Just try and prepare everyone for that possibility. Now, of course, today, October 6th, Tuesday, it's draft day. Today is the first round of the 2020 NHL Draft, the virtual NHL Draft. And who better to discuss all things surrounding the NHL Draft than Scott Wheeler, the prospect guru from The Athletic. Just a minute. Don't hang up. Yellow. You'll have to speak up. I'm wearing a towel. So we now welcome on the Power of the Towel podcast for the Next Misconduct Network recorded live from the Posted Up Studios in Burnaby, British Columbia. We have the prospect guru from The Athletic, Scott Wheeler. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, man? I'm doing very well myself. And first off, uh, we in Vancouver want to thank you. We're recording this a few days after the uh, NHL awards were announced. We want to thank you for voting Quinn Hughes first 
in the Calder. <laughs> we really appreciate that out here. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you saying that. I thought that he was the right choice, and I thought by the time that the year had progressed, given everything that had happened in Vancouver and given the context of what Quinn Hughes meant to the Vancouver Canucks versus what Kale McCarr meant to the Colorado Avalanche, that he he ended up being sort of not the clear favorite for me, but I, I, I did feel like he had the stronger case when all was said and done. And then obviously they both had excellent playoffs, but I think his playoffs only sort of – stood to confirm that. And and we vote before the playoffs at the PHWA, we vote before the playoffs even begin, but uh, it was good to see him go out and have that kind of impact in the playoffs as well, because I thought he was exceptional. Yeah. And you mentioned the context. Colorado was already a pretty good team before Kale McCarr showed up. The Canucks were not that great before Quinn Hughes showed up. Like context matters in this award, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think over the course of the season, he also arguably became a better player. And that isn't to say that Kale isn't special because I think he is. And I think Kale has a chance to win a Norris trophy someday. But I think the expectation coming into the season was that Kale was going to be a dominant sort of first pairing guy for them right from the get go. And I think there were people, at least in the scouting community, those I talked to who had maybe a slightly stronger reservations about where Quinn was going to be able to take his game, at least immediately. Everybody's fond of Quinn. Everybody, even a year ago, based off of how he played in in college and how he played in his brief stint at the end of the season Mm. in Vancouver, knew that he was going to be a special player. But I think the, the, the quickness with which he progressed in terms of that trajectory, how fast he was on that upward incline as the season progressed and as he just got better and better and better, I think that was the staying power in, in terms of my vote um, relative to, to Kale McCarr, who I felt like was outstanding in the first half of the season and then sort of fought through some, obviously, injuries, et cetera, et cetera, as the season progressed in his own way. So Quinn, I just felt like, had the stronger body of work on the whole, and, and certainly his role on that Canucks team played a part in that vote for me. I don't know if you know this, Scott, but you have a bit of a reputation out here as being a Toronto guy. I think you voting for Quinn Hughes for the caller is going to help with that. But we'll get to that later. We'll get to that (laughs) later. Uh, So the NHL draft is coming up. It's the 2020 pandemic. NHL draft is going to be a draft unlike any other. All these players are going to be, you know, selected from home. I assume it's going to be something similar to what the NFL did where these players are at home. They're going to have a camera on them and that's how they're going to get selected. And I'll admit, I'll admit to you, Scott, that I'm a, I'm a big world juniors guy and, 95% 95% of my info on prospects comes from watching that two-week tourney. I'm not watching WHL mm. games. I'm not watching OHL games. I'm a World Juniors guy and obviously reading articles from likes of yourself and other uh, prospect uh, gurus, as I, as I like to call them. We had J.D. Burke from Elite Prospects on uh, mm-hmm. you know, back in June, but we talked a bit of the draft, but like that's where my knowledge comes from is World Juniors. I'll admit 95% is World Juniors. And articles, and I think that's a lot of hockey fans out there. I think a lot of hockey fans try and pretend that they watch all these games. But in reality, there's about like 12 people on Twitter who watch all the prospects <laughs> games, and then the information gets trickled down from there. So, uh, yeah, let's get right to it. Lafreniere is going first overall, right? Like I've I've seen a couple articles that Quinn Byfield is top of a couple people's list, but I just remember from the World Juniors, obviously, that Lafreniere was awesome. He was great. He was maybe Canada's best forward. It's pretty clear cut for me. It's been pretty clear cut virtually all year. I don't think there's a Taylor or Tyler thing happening in this draft class. And quite frankly, I don't think 
but outside of the actual existence of the Taylor or versus Tyler debate once upon a time that, that that one versus two debate exists in virtually any draft class. I think, I think we in the media have a habit of manufacturing that debate when it often isn't there. I think we, I mean, you go back through the list, it, it, the same thing happened even with Connor McDavid and Jack Eichel yeah. at the time there was a, a sort of manufactured hype around Jack Eichel. And, and certainly Jack has, has had was then and is now one of the greatest prospects in the world then. And one of the greatest players in the world now and was on my heart ballot this year, et cetera. But um, yeah, I, I think we fall into that, that sort of overexposure bias where you're looking at a player like Alexi Lafreniere, who's been around for forever. He's an older player in this draft class. He played three instead of two years in junior hockey. And you start to nitpick, you start to look for things that are, that are maybe missing in his game that you don't look for in some of those other top prospects when you're so sort of overwhelmed with the talent that they have. So I think that happened with Alexi. There were questions about his skating a year ago. And I think he proved this year that a lot of those things were overstated. There were questions about his health this year with his ankle and I think just in talking to people around him in, in in recent months that his ankle is fine and that's not going to be a long-term issue so all of this sort of quote-unquote concerns that you might have had about Alexi and his ability to to take that next step and to be the number one prospect in this draft and then to stay the number one player in this draft over the next five or ten years I, I think some of those have have begun to disappear have begun to dissipate and now you're just left with him as the clear-cut pick and I think he's the right pick. So is there any concern, is there, is the whole Quinn Byfield potentially going first overall just a product of, you know, Byfield's obviously a center and Lafreniere's a winger? Um, I think that's part of it. I, I think you also look at Ed Quinton Byfield and look at this six foot four kid and say, holy shit, that isn't, that, that kind of package doesn't really exist yeah. in the NHL these days. I mean, outside of Eric Stahl of his prime and of Genny Malkin of his prime, um, it, it's a pretty short list of players with that size who go on to be true superstars in the NHL. And every team wants one. Every team wants that of Denny Malkin, that Eric Stahl, even, even a Miko Rantanen or a Blake Wheeler type. Um, and, and that's, that's the allure of Quinton Byfield. But I, I think that there's a rawness to his game. There's still an unpredictability that's at play in terms of his trajectory and where he might be two or three years from now. And I think you just have to look at Alexi, look at the sure thing, look at the kid who's ready to step into the league right away and be an impact player and look at the kid who has fewer holes in his game relative to someone like Quinton Byfield or even Tim Stutzla, who I think has started to build maybe a little bit too much hype as, as the year has progressed in terms of where he slots into this draft. But uh, laugh is, is uh, laughing rough is the, the clear-cut choice for me and I think as good as Quinton is and as good as he might be I think if all goes well for Quinton Byfield maybe he's the best player in this draft 10 years from now but I'm not sure that's a risk I'm willing to take at this point in their trajectories and in their development okay I want to ask about Tim Stutzel in, in a minute but first I want to ask about what the Ottawa Senators are going to do this might be the most fascinating question in the draft in terms of what the Sens are going to do because obviously they have the third overall pick and the fifth overall pick like if they hit on both these picks they're, they're set. They might be set for the future. Like the, the rebuild is accelerated by who knows how many years, even if they hit on maybe one of these two picks, I think they're going to be in good shape. And obviously if they whiff on both of them, they're back to being the senators and they're going to be terrible for a long time. So what do you see that the senators doing with the third and fifth overall pick? Who do you think they have on their radar? Well, it's become a bit of a perfect storm for them. The fact that, that the sharks didn't even protect that pick in the first place sort of started that perfect storm. And now they're in a position where 
their organization has a very good chance of, of changing its fate within a, a sort of 24 hour window here. It, it's going to be a monumental day, I think, in the history of the senator's organization and really one that you're going to look back on five, 10 years from now and say, this is where it all started. And the, the thing with the, the, the other part, if you will, of, of the perfect storm that's happening for Ottawa is that they already have one of the deepest prospect pools in hockey. Oh, yeah. They have arguably a, a top three prospect pool in terms of sheer depth, but they don't have the star prospect prospects coming they don't have that sort of wow you talent that's coming as good as players like eric brandstrom and drake batherson and you go down the list are they they don't have the, the sure thing and i think what you're going to get in these two kids at three and five is potentially going to be two sure things and the, instantaneously the two top prospects in an organization that already has a ton of top prospects so it, they're they're extremely well positioned and as far as what they're going to do with the pick I tend to think that going with two forwards is the way to go. It's very tempting when you're in a situation with multiple picks in the first round, and they actually have a third pick later in the first round. But it's very tempting in that that kind of situation to go for go with one forward and one defenseman, and to sort of give yourself depth at both positions. And I think the way the way this draft is shaping up, you've got two top D prospects in Jake Sanderson and Jamie Drysdale, and then you've got a plethora, four or five realistically forward prospects that you could take in that range. And I I tend to to argue and and have for the last few months that the the forward prospects are superior prospects to who Jamie Drysdale and Jake Sanderson are going to be. So Mm. that means if if I'm sitting at that table with with their organization and and I'm looking at the options, I'm looking at Tim Stutzla, I'm looking at Cole Perfetti, I'm looking at Lucas Raymond, I'm looking at Marco Rossi even um, before I I go the route of of taking a player like a Jamie Drysdale. So I, I think you've got in those four forward prospects that I listed, I think you've got four potential first line players. And I, I, I'm not absolutely certain that you've got two potential first pairing defensemen in the other two kids who are available there. Um, so that, so that's where it always has landed for me. I, I think you take two or, or uh, of those sort of top four forwards and, and you laugh your way to the bank with two pieces of a first line and boy, could they use it? I mean, you look at how, how they're assembled on D they, they've already got yeah. Thomas Shabbat. They've got sort of depth coming at on D in terms of Lassie Thompson and Jacob Bernard Docker and some Eric Brandstrom and some of their other prospects and up front, as good as Brady Kachuk is as good as, as some of their young pieces are going to be Brady Kachuk's not going to be the number one player on a cup contender up front. And, and these two kids have a, sort of the potential to be those kinds of pieces. So uh, I think you go with one of those forwards. Okay. So we mentioned Tim Stut. Is I, am I pronouncing that right? Tim Stutzel? Stutzla. Stutzla. Okay. Well, getting a German lesson here. So Tim, <laughs> Tim Stutzla. Obviously, he played for Germany at the World Juniors, five assists in five games. Had a good showing. Mm-hmm. But here's my question to you about this, this guy. How much is this guy the real deal? Is he going to be worth a top three pick? Or do people think he's good because we see Leon Dreisaitl win the heart, win the heart Ross and realize, oh, hey, Germans can play hockey too? Like, is this guy going to take, can be taken too high because he's, he's German and we finally realize that Germans play hockey too? What has emerged over the course of the year, I think, is, is this 
conversation and this narrative that it's only Quinton Byfield and Tim Stutzla as the options at, at second and third overall. I, I think there is more to it than that. I'm a really, really big fan of Tim. I think he's going to be one of the best transition players in the world. He kind of has that, that sort of low center of gravity, agile skating stride that you see in many of the best skaters in today's games, whether it's Matt Barzell, you go down the list, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think when you see a kid like Tim who can skate at a sort of world-class level, he'll, he'll step into the NHL and be one of the if there's 32 teams he's probably one of the 32 best skaters in the league from day one and that that gets teams excited that sort of pops it it, it, it you notice it when you're watching him you notice it when you're watching a game and teams increasingly think that that the NHL is going to continue to turn into a track meet etc so the idea of, of getting the best transition player in the draft is potentially really exciting the concern with me and Tim at least as it relates to some of those other players is that Lucas Raymond and Cole Perfetti, those kids, even Marco Rossi, those kids are problem solvers when they're out on the ice. They're the smartest players when they're on the ice. And I'm not sure that Tim is that when he's out there. I think he can put himself in tough, tough situations. He can try to do too much and he just doesn't read the play and sort of process problems and fight through traffic and fight through layers of pressure as a playmaker at the same level that those other three kids do. So that's why I think it's probably a little bit closer of a conversation. And that isn't to say that, that I think it's a mistake if you take Tim Stutzla, if you're the Ottawa Senators third overall, or even if you, maybe if you're the LA Kings second overall, but he, he probably wouldn't be my guy at either of those spots. And I just think it's a closer debate with some of those other kids that I've mentioned than maybe it's made out to be in the public sphere. And there are a small number of scouts in the private sphere that I think would agree with that. Okay, interesting. So uh, something else I've read researching this draft is, I can't, and I apologize to whoever wrote this, someone said it's the best draft since the 2015 draft, which is obviously high praise. You had McDavid, Eichel, but you also had solid later round picks. I'm thinking like a Brock Besser for the Vancouver Canucks, Kyle Connor, you know, player Thomas Shabbat, like Matt Barzell got, went 15th overall, I think. Players like that. So is that a fair is that a fair comparison, like comparing this draft to the 2015 draft? I would probably argue that it's not. I think 2015 is going to go down in history. I mean, you didn't even mention Mitch Marner or Miko Rantanen. Yeah, you go down there the were so, many, so many good players in that draft. Yeah, it, it was a special draft. I think it'll go down in history as, as one of the best drafts in NHL history. Um, so I, I don't think this draft's in that range, not only because I'm, I don't think this draft is going to look as deep as that draft, despite the fact that this draft is reasonably deep and I would say is above average in terms of its depth. Um, it, it's that combined with the fact that Look, as good as as Connor McDavid and, and Jack Eichel are, um, and, and as good as Alexi Lafreniere is, I don't think Alexi is is on that level. I don't think he's a Connor McDavid, Jack Eichel level talent. So not only do you not have a prospect at the top of the draft who's as strong as those 2015 kids were, but I, I don't think you're going to see as many of those sort of late round home run swing type of prospects okay. as we've seen that have emerged out of that class. Uh, so out, you mentioned Alexis Lafreniere. It looks like he's probably going to jump in right away to the NHL. But outside of Alexis Lafreniere, who is the draft pick, the draft prospect that could realistically jump in right away next year in the NHL? 
I think my answer there is, is Marco Rossi. Marco is a kid who, A, has been preparing for that. He's one of the only players who hasn't committed to playing anywhere this year yet. He decided he wasn't going to sign in Switzerland with the ZSC Lions, who are the European team that owned his rights. He's not returning to the Ottawa 67 is to play in the OHL. So he has sent a strong message that I, I'm just going to spend my summer training. I might be a little bit later to get back into game action than some of these other kids are. And maybe that will have an impact on my development, but I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to bet on myself and I'm going to plan to make my team out of training camp. And I think he's capable of doing that. Marco is a brilliant two-way player, the best defensive forward at the top of this draft. And I think his defensive game in conjunction with how strong he is, he's only five foot nine. So some have questions about his size, but this kid is built like an ox and one of the strongest players on every time he's on the ice players bounce off of him. He's brilliant along the wall and on the four check and that kind of a thing. So I really do think Marco's ready and he doesn't have this, this sort of top offensive ceiling that I think players like Perfetti and Stutzla uh, and even Lucas Raymond have, but I think there's a, there's a more of a roundedness to his game that is already established. He's also on the, uh, a little bit on the older side of this draft class. Um, so all of those things combined to say that I, I think Marco is going to going to make the jump with, with whichever team inside that top 10 likely takes him. Okay, and the Athletic has him uh, seventh to the New Jersey Devils in their in the mock draft. So yeah, like, I, I, I presume like New Jersey is a good place if you're a young player to get a shot at the NHL. But here's what I want to know. That every year, there's always a guy who's taken way too early in the first round and a sleeper pick, you know, a later first round pick who ends up being a stud. You know, so I want to know first, who is that classic guy in this, who's going to be the classic guy in this draft that's taken way too early in the first round? Think like Michael Rasmussen to the Detroit Red Wings back in 2017, where I was like, this guy's taken way too high. Like, who's going to be that guy this year, you think? I think it's bound to be a defenseman in all likelihood, just because I really do think that in that sort of top 20, top 15 range, there are only two defensemen for me who should go there. And as we know at the draft, that that never happens. You're always going to see five or six defensemen yeah. taken inside the top 20. So I think what's going to emerge is a player like Caden Gooley or a player like Braden Schneider, two kids out of the WHL who are these big, strong, physical sort of two-way types. I, I think you could see one of those kids go as high as sort of 10th, 11th overall. And I think if that happens with some of the forwards who are also likely to be available there, that you could look back on that pick five, 10 years from now, even if Braden Schneider and Caden Gooley go on to play in the NHL, which is a realistic outcome for them, you could look back and say, we're the team that passed on on the Matt Barzell at 15th overall or that kind of a thing. So I, I really do think it's it's going to be a defenseman that goes a little too high. And I think those two players are the two likeliest to maybe sneak up a little higher than they should. Okay, and yeah, who's going to be the the sleeper pick? Who's going to be the guy like a Matt Barzell who we think you know five years down the road? How did this guy slip to where he was taken? I think Maverick Bork comes to mind as a player who has the potential to do that. It, once you get into that ten to fifteen range, things open up, and I think if Maverick goes in that range, which is possible, that he won't be that guy because that's kind of where he belongs. But I think what you could see happen is that he he's a player who falls a little bit more. Maverick played on a Shawinigan team that is never typically sort of one of the highly scouted teams. He had to do a lot of it on his own last year. He didn't play surrounded by a ton of star talent. He didn't play like a Jack Quinn did with an Ottawa 
Ottawa 67s team that had five of the top 15 scorers in the OHL. So Bork's a player who's, he's, he's not a big kid. He's not a big power forward type. And, and mm. I think just his, the combination of his sort of smaller, he's not small, but smaller skill set and that sort of slick playmaking quality often gets lost with some of those QMJHL kids. And I think the QMJHL as a league on the whole can still be a little underrepresented at the top of the draft. So I think he's a player that could potentially fall a little bit further than he, than he should maybe. And then as those defensemen get picked ahead of him and some defensemen slide up the board, suddenly Maverick Bork, who I, I think has the potential to be a top of the lineup player is available at 24th or 23rd overall. And, and some team gets really lucky. Okay. Maverick Bork. I'll keep my name out for that. And this next question, I'm really going to test your draft knowledge with this one. The Van- we are a Canucks podcast after all. So the Vancouver Canucks only draft pick so far is a third round pick. 82nd overall. Who could the Canucks possibly take with that pick? I think if I'm the Canucks, I'm looking to, to, to take a big cut there, to take a risk, to take a player with a ton of upside. And when I think about that range in terms of who might have might be available, there's a defenseman by the name of Anton Johannesson who was a little bit of a late bloomer in Sweden and, and sort of came into the super elite level, not even into the pro level, but into the under 20 level there a lot later than some of his peers and has battled injuries. And he's a slick sort of playmaking high upside defenseman with a ton of skill offensively. And I think he's the kind of player who could slip a little bit further just because he hasn't been around for a long time. He hasn't been a name. And despite the fact that he's become a little bit of a name in the public sphere in terms of people like me talking about him I'm not sure that that same kind of buzz extends to the private sphere on him quite yet so I think there might be some value there Um, again I I look at players who have also been traded mid-year I often argue that players who get traded mid-year or or make a move in terms of their development mid-year can fly a little bit under the radar because suddenly you've got different scouts watching them there isn't the same scout sitting at the table who's vouching for them so a second kid if I had to add one to Anton would probably be a kid by the name of Martin Chromiak who joined in the second half of the season, the Kingston Frontenacs. He's the only sort of top Slovakian player in this draft. He came over and stepped onto the first line in Kingston with Zade Wisdom and Shane Wright, who is obviously going to go on to be a sensation in the NHL someday. And he never looked out of place on that first line in Kingston from day one in the second half. And I was really impressed with his upside offensively, both in transition and off the cycle. So he's a player who I think could stick around into the third or fourth round potentially, and there could be real value there. Okay. Okay. That's a, that's very interesting. I think our our listeners would be very, very interested in that information. So who are some of the best names in this draft? I like a guy like Jake neighbors. That's, it sounds like an awesome name. Hendricks Lapierre. That's awesome. Like, who are the, some of the best names, in your opinion, from the 2020 draft? Oh, that's a good question. Um, when I look at this draft class, when I look up and down this draft class, I, I think the, the one of the sort of big names that comes to me as a kid who I already mentioned in terms of Zade Wisdom, anytime you have oh, the last yeah. name Wisdom uh, and, and the first name Zade, that's, that's a pretty good package there. Oscar Magnuson comes to mind as well. Um, I don't know. I would have to think on that, though. I think Nico Dawes is a hell of a name, the goaltender out of Guelph who played at the World Juniors. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I, I, you caught me off guard there. <laughs> I'm not sure who my who my money name would be in this draft. Okay, just looking through the mock draft right now. William Willinder. That's That sounds awesome. Noel yeah. Gundler. That's a good one. Uh, yeah, you mentioned Hendrix Lapierre is probably be my choice for top name. Hendrix and Lapierre. Two very recognizable names. I like that. I like that. So I also want to ask you a couple of quick questions about Canucks prospects that, you know, 
the Canucks already have since this is a Canucks podcast. What's going on with Vasily Podkolzin? Because, you know, he's been kind of... The big story in Vancouver right now is he's not really getting that much ice time and, like, half the SKA has COVID. So, like, what's the situation there? And where do you see if Podkolzin... Like, it sounds like he's going to let his contract in the KHL run out and come over here and try and make the NHL team next year. Like, where do you see this guy in the Canucks if he makes a lineup? Well, he's always been a little bit tougher to evaluate. Uh, that's just the natural sort of way of things. Once these kids, especially at a very early age, make a, a, the jump to the pro level and then don't get the kind of opportunities that maybe you'd expect for a top prospect. And I think part of the reason I've been seeing what you kind of mentioned off the top of the show here, but part of the reason I think I've been seen as a little bit of a Toronto guy in the Vancouver market was because I, I've always been typically lower on pod coals and then most and, yeah, and people don't extends, like that don't don't shit on canucks prospects out here <laughs> and that extends honestly to before i even knew he was going to be a, a canucks prospect i was lower on him in his draft year when he was tied to absolutely nobody and i think what's happened with pod coals is he was really good at, at the tail end of last season and everybody got really excited about that and and rightfully so because he was excellent and then he came back and it was a fresh season and uh, as is typical of a player his age, he was asked to kind of start the season in a lesser role. And now as things have obviously changed due to COVID in the KHL, but um, I think there's more there. The, the, the package offensively is exciting. You've got a kid who is is physical. You've got a kid who is advanced in terms of his physical and athletic maturity at, at his age. He's strong on the puck. He can make a lot of plays in terms of navigating through traffic. He's got great hands. He can finish off plays. We all saw the highlights from before his draft year. Yeah basically dummied the opposition internationally when he was playing against his peers. So it's there. It's underneath the surface. My concern with Pod Colson and having him maybe a few slots lower when I do my typical rankings and that kind of a thing than most people expect is that he relies on instinct a lot when he's out there. He, he makes the available play that's in front of him. And I think oftentimes that can be an asset, but oftentimes it can also make you look like you're sort of rushing things, like you're not sort of slowing down. And there are times when he can just get wound a little bit too wound up. And I think he just needs to settle himself and sort of maybe shoot down shift and, and sort of hit another gear uh, in terms of relaxing his game and, and maybe processing at a higher level. So we'll see. I, I think he's going to come over here. He's going to be given every opportunity to make the team. Eventually he's going to be playing in a top nine role. I'm just not sure whether he's going to be the star level NHL player that some others believe he will be. Okay, yeah, and I think that's the, and you would probably, you know, can can vouch for this maybe as, as a prospect guy, that's probably the big risk you take when drafting a player out of the KHL is you, you don't get really any say in their development. Like the KHL organization is going to do essentially what they want with them, like we see with Pod Colson, and that's it. You don't really have much say, whether it is if they're playing at like the CHL or you know, NCAA, you may have a bit more say in, in perhaps what's going on. And I get that's a risk, but also I think we all know what Russia is like. If Jim Benning shows up there with an unmarked bag of cash, he could probably fix a lot of problems with Bob Colson, right? Like, that's just Russia. Yeah, I, I don't know how far I'm going. I'm willing to go in that direction, but um, he's. you're right, though. It's a completely different set of circumstances than it is in North America. The kids are brought a lot, along a lot slower. They, they, they have to sort of earn it, quote-unquote, and, and fight their way up the lineup. Nothing's gifted to them. They aren't gifted top power play time. I mean, we t you mentioned the name Noel Gunler earlier. This is a kid who should absolutely be playing in the SHL on the top power play unit and doesn't even play on their second power play unit because 
he's been told that he has to sort of take his take his, or earn his stripes if you will mm-hmm. he's got to sort of take his lumps and and fight through it and and earn that spot and the same thing has happened with Pod Colson and happens with virtually every prospect who plays at that level it, it even happened with Kirill Kaprizov who's about to come over and become a star for the Minnesota Wild he he had to earn his stripes he had to fight for it he had to sort of claw his way up into those prominent roles and prominent offensive situations so sometimes that just takes time and then in that time good things can happen in terms of a player's development because he's either sort of playing at a pro level while a lot of his peers are playing in junior or bad things can happen because while his peers are earning and building confidence in junior and working on their offensive game he's not getting the kind of minutes and reps that you'd hope for out of a player of his skill so it's a mixed bag and it's a risk that you take going either direction but it's definitely a completely different world in Russia than it is here yeah and back in January you had Niels Hoglander as the Canucks top rated prospect where do you mm-hmm. see where do you see him fitting with the Canucks when they when they get over here when he gets over here sorry well, I think he's going to become a fan favorite. I think both of those kids are going to endear themselves to the fan base pretty quickly. They, neither of them lack effort or, or that sort of fiery competitiveness that, that fans love. He's he's the kind of player who, who who's a little bit on the sort of riskier side in terms of both the risk that he takes with the puck offensively and trying to do too much occasionally, mm-hmm. but also in terms of walking that fine line physically, being engaged, being a thorn in, in the opposition side. He's, he's not afraid to sort of mix it up and get get greasy, even though he's only a sort of five foot nine, five foot ten player. So um, I think people are really going to endear themselves quickly to Nils. And, and I think his game offensively in terms of his ability to change directions, his ability to hang on to the puck, he's going to be able to draw attention to himself in a variety of ways. And then I think he uses that in that attention well to find teammates, to be a supporting player, to, to create on the power play, all of those things. So he's he's got it all offensively i think i would like to see him play with a little bit more pace and explosiveness in straight lines but he's very very quick in terms of his ability to stop and start and change directions and i think he's going to be maybe not a a first line player but a a very sort of impactful middle six player who can play on your power play and every team needs those guys yeah and especially the canucks because we all know the cap situation there and they need guys like pud colson and hoglander to step in right away on ELCs, right? Otherwise, they they may be in a bit of trouble with forward depth. Yeah, that's just it. Every team nowadays needs that sort of insulating talent that's on a cheap deal that can step in and have an impact and not look out of place, especially as the COVID era begins and teams may have internal caps yes. that, that aren't the, the sort of max cap and teams may not be able to spend like they hope. And maybe the game that's already trending younger gets even younger in the next two or three years as, as teams begin to rely a little bit more on those ELC players and Huglander and Pod Colson, there's no question. They have to be that kind of a player for the Canucks to, to help sort of push the Canucks over the edge and get them to that next, that next plateau as a, as a true contender. Okay, so yeah, I just have a few more questions, but I'm going to call Audible on this one. Yaroslav Askarov, the Athletic has him 13th on their mock draft. Is this guy the real deal? Is he going to be worth taking like a 13th overall pick on a goalie? Yeah, I think he is. I, I didn't say that last year when Spencer Knight went in the same range. I was a little bit lower. Felt like Spencer Knight should have been more of a late first round pick rather than a kind of top 15 pick. And this year I've I've changed my tone on that in terms of Askarov. I think Askarov's a better goalie prospect at the same age than than Knight was a year ago. And I think there are things in Askarov's game that that you rarely see in a goalie his age especially in terms of his athleticism. He is explosive in the net in terms of going post to post, 
going from one edge to the other to make a tough recovery save when he looks like he's about to get beat by a deke. Um, all of those qualities are pretty rare in goalies that age. And there aren't a lot of goalies in the NHL, frankly, where athleticism is their go-to trade. A lot of goalies in the NHL now are, are built on playing as a sort of blocking style. They've got that huge size and the exceptions to that rule have typically been the Marc-Andre Fleury's and the Braden yeah. Holtby's and the Jonathan Quicks of the world. Those goalies who are just relying on athleticism and being more athletic than their, than their peers in terms of making those difficult saves. And I think that's where you're going to see Askarov excel. There are some quirks to his game technically. I don't think he's the most technically sound goalie. He doesn't look like he's Pecorine or Robin Lehner in the net in terms of their ability to just, to just fill the net. But I think it, that the athleticism that you see in players and goalies like Braden Holtby, I think that's what you're looking at in Askarov is just an explosive, powerful goalie who makes really difficult saves on a consistent basis and kind of can pull you out of your seat as a goalie, which is a pretty rare quality. Yeah, and I'm, I'm always interested, Scott, in people who decide to cover prospects and that decides to be early because it's definitely a lot different than covering, let's say, an NHL beat where, you know, the games are at a reasonable hour. You, I'm sure you got to, if you have countless stories of waking up really early to watch some of these prospects, I'm sure some of these streams are hard to find. I can't imagine, I don't even know where to start to find an SHL stream or a KHL stream. And I'm sure some of them, especially in these old OHL, like WHL ranks, maybe aren't the highest quality. So like what intrigued you about, you know, covering prospects? Why did you decide to go down this route? Uh, there were a lot of things that sort of led into it. The The big thing was that when, when I sort of started journalism school, I, I decided to, there are really only two big journalism schools in Ontario. There's Ryerson and Carleton. And I ended up at Carleton. And by being in Ottawa, you've got the Ottawa 67s in one spot. And then about 10 minutes east, you've got the Gatineau Olympique. So having access to both the OHL and the QMJHL okay. was a big deal for me. And then the other thing was just that I've always been fascinated with player analysis and and player development more than the the sort of sum of a game so I, i'm less concerned with games and i'm more fascinated with with players and the way that players are trending and obviously prospects are, are kind of the entry point there they're 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 the next frontier they're how you use that skill in terms of evaluating players to find out the way that the game is trending and the way that player development is trending and all of that. So I, I think it always just felt naturally that pro, to me, that, that prospects were kind of going to be my niche and my fascination in terms of player evaluation and, and game evaluation at, at that kind of a level. And at the NHL level, certainly you have that, but it doesn't take me to tell anyone how good Connor McDavid is in the yeah. NHL, at the NHL level. So th there's more nuance that can be tapped into in terms of really explaining to people where players that they don't already know or that they aren't already familiar with might be able to take their games. Okay, so you mentioned you graduated from Carleton Journalism School. Would you consider yourself a big J journalist then? Like Carleton, that's, that's big J journalism stuff right there. Yeah, absolutely. I was always a storyteller first and everything else has, has kind of come as, as the sort of second tier of, of what I do. So telling stories about these kids is, is always going to be my focus. And then the evaluation is kind of that second layer that has just become a, a bit of a pet project and a bit of a fascination for me over my last six or seven years of, of covering the NHL draft. So uh, journalism is definitely sort of at the forefront of everything I do still. And then everything else kind of follows. Okay, so one last question because I know you have to get going here. We mentioned it. You've mentioned it before. You have a reputation of being a bit of a Toronto guy in the Vancouver market. I want to help you out with that. Like, what can we do to rehab your Toronto guy image in Vancouver? I'll, I'll help out, whichever, however you want me to do it. 
my big recommendation would be to read my work because I'm not sure if you read my work, whether you would come away with the same opinion. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I've grown up in Toronto. I'm born and raised in the city. So that's always going to be a part of, of, I think, how I'm perceived in terms of doing national work. It's hard to do national work from Toronto and not be perceived as a Toronto guy, I think, in some ways. Um, just, just the way that this market tends to dominate and the way that I get asked to talk about Leafs prospects all the time and that kind of a thing. The Leafs are still very much at the, at the sort of forefront of what I do. And I covered the Leafs uh, before I was full-time on the prospect beat. I covered the Leafs for two years at The Athletic as well. So I think that's always in the back of people, people's minds when they read my work. And uh, it's just on me to, to sort of continue to do my work with as much care and nuance as I can and hope that everybody else will sort of get on board. All right, do you still believe the Leafs can beat any team in the NHL in the seven-game series? If you say if you say no, that's going to help a lot with your Toronto guy image out here. I think the answer to that is yes. I think any of the sort of top 12, 10 or 12 teams in the NHL are capable of splitting a series, and I think that that tweet in particular has been <laughs> pulled, out, pulled out of context a little bit. But yes, I, my answer would be yes, I would stick by that. I think there are sort of... 10, 12 teams in the NHL that have a chance to go on a run on any given year and that luck and goaltending and circumstances and injuries and players not getting suspended, et cetera, et cetera, all come into play. But I think the Leafs are capable of being one of those teams over the next two or three years here. And whether it happens or not is up to them. And we'll see. They, they've certainly got some flaws and some things that they need to iron out and all sorts of problems in terms of the way that they're constructed. But I think the way that they're constructed is still possible to win in the NHL. And I, I would say that about a lot of teams. Okay. Are the Vancouver Canucks one of those 10 to 12 teams? And if not right now, what do they have to do to become one of those 10 to 12 teams? I think they're right there. I think they're, they, I, I, I would have to give it a, a little bit more thought and, and really look over the, the sort of state of the league right now. But I think they're right there. They're right. If, if they're not at the sort of fringe of that 10 to 12, then they're right in that next group. Um, and, and in terms of the next step for them, I think they've drafted extremely well. I've, I've said that for years now. Um, I think they've drafted extremely well in the last few years. I think that if they continue to draft and insulate that group and they can work to shed some of the ugly, the quite frankly, ugly contracts on, on the books that they will have a little bit more wiggle room. They'll have some more room to move. Obviously Markstrom has become a major piece. Uh, so we'll see what happens there, but it, fr from top to bottom, I think they've got a good thing going. And I think between Deaky Pete and Quinn, you've got two of the more electric players in the world at this point in, in one place for the foreseeable future. So the foundation is there and now it's about sort of insulating and finding better depth because I think depth was ultimately their undoing this season. As long as you keep up, you know, hyping up Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes, you will always have love in the Vancouver market. That's pretty much all you need to do if you're an outside guy to say like Elias Pettersson's a top five center and people are going to love you. Well, I think he is top five. Okay, center, perfect. So there you go. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Scott Wheeler, officially not a Toronto guy anymore. Scott, thank you so much for doing this interview, and hopefully you can have me on again sometime. Uh, this is a lot of fun. Yep, cheers. Anytime, man. All right, thank you to Scott Wheeler of The Athletic for hopping on the podcast. Much appreciated, and I hope you got some good insights into what will go down in the 2020 NHL draft. Okay. So, before we go here, I want to get into my thoughts on the draft in general. And contrary to maybe what you heard in this interview, it is hard for me as I'm getting older to get more excited about the NHL draft. I used to love the NHL draft. It used to be one of my favorite events of the hockey calendar. 
I remember pouring over mock drafts. I remember pouring over who's going to go where and the minutia and what possible trades could happen and everything. I was obsessed with the NHL draft for quite a while. And it, obviously it helped when the Canucks were dog shit. And that's what you had to look forward to. But as I've gotten older these past few years, it's hard for me to get excited for the NHL draft as much as I as I was. I'm still going to watch the first round, don't get me wrong. But also, and NHL has probably never had this problem, NBA Finals are the same day. So I'm going to have a pretty divided attention for the first time in a long time for the NHL draft. But I've discussed my theory, my manifesto on prospects before. And NHL prospects... And this goes for the Canucks, but every every fan is guilty of this too. You know, you can project anything onto these prospects. They're a blank slate. And you can really just project anything you want. Like, oh, Niels Hoglander? He's going to be a top-line player for sure. Vasily Colson, top-line player for sure. Jack Rathbone, going to be a top-four defenseman for sure, for sure. Again, you can project anything you want onto these prospects. Which is why a lot of people have a hard time letting prospects go when they're traded. Think back to the Tyler DeFoley trade. A big reason why I didn't really care that Tyler Madden was part of the deal was, again, you can project anything you want into a a prospect. So Tyler Madden, did it suck he had to go? Yeah, but if you think about it, if he's a center, he's going to, Tap out at most as a third-line center. Canucks already seem to have one in Adam Gaudet. If he's a winger, he's a third-line winger. You can find those pretty easily in trade, open market, via the next draft. Those are always available. So people are upset with Tyler Manning getting traded. That's why I didn't really care at the time. In that situation, give me the sure thing in Tyler DeFoley over a guy who may or may not become a slightly worse version or equal-level player and Tyler DeFoley, right? Now, in terms of the Canucks' third-round draft pick in the 2020 NHL draft, we talked about it with Scott Wheeler. I mean, the, the rumors are out there that the Canucks are looking to take a goalie with that pick, someone who Ian Clark really likes. Who that is, I guess we'll wait and see. Could they get back into the second round? Yeah, possibly. Trevor Beggs mentioned it on the quickie that Jake for 10 is probably gone. Maybe you package a guy like Jake for 10, try and get him back up in the second round. Take a forward you like and then take a goalie with that third round pick. I don't know what the price is going to be for a guy like Jake for 10. And I don't know if the Canucks have the assets to get back up into the draft. It's always nice to say we're going to try and recoup draft picks. But It's always easier said than done, folks. It's always easier said than done. Anyways, that's this week's episode of Power of the Towel for the next Misconduct Network. I'm your host, Nick Bondi. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Power of the Towel and my personal account as well for my personal takes at Nick Bondi. Subscribe to the network as well. Silky and Filthy later this week. The Quickie every weekday. A good way to start your day with some hot, Hockey takes from one Trevor Beggs. Sipping on a 40, which is officially back. Kyle will have a few more episodes of that. Once again, this is Power of the Towel for the Next Misconduct Network. My name is Nick Bondi, and thank you 
for listening.